Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. So I have been reading this funny little book called The Hidden Life of Trees. Anybody read that? Wow, not a single person. So it's this, I mean, it's not everyone's cup of tea. It is a uh, person who's worked in a forest for like 30 years, and he's written a book just on his reflections of working in a forest. Like, it really doesn't get any more exciting than that. I don't think Marvel are fighting for the rights to make it into a hit movie. But I found it quite interesting. And You know, needless to say, given all of the imagery that Jesus pulls from agriculture and botany, it wasn't long before I stumbled upon something that reminded me of the church. And so let me read this to you. It's a little extract out of the book. And it is a, um, he's looking at how they found out that sometimes trees can get cut down or hit by lightning or blown down by wind, and so all that's left is a stump. But those stumps can stay alive. And without the ability to photosynthesize, you know, they don't have anything green, they don't have any chlorophyll, therefore they aren't able to produce any sugar. How do they survive? And what they found out is that in a forest, neighboring trees can connect roots up under the ground and actually a neighbouring tree will pump sugar into the tree stump to keep it alive. Right? It's fascinating. I will get a copy for whoever wants one. And, but listen to this. And picture the church, if you would, for a second. Why are trees such social beings? Why do they share food with their own species and sometimes even go so far as to nourish their competitors? The reasons are the same as for human communities there are advantages to working together. A tree is not a forest. On its own, a tree cannot establish a consistent local climate. It is at the mercy of the wind and the weather. But together, many trees create an ecosystem that moderates extremes of heat and cold, stores a great deal of water, and generates a great deal of humidity. And in this protected environment, Trees can live to be very old. To get to this point, the community must remain intact. If every tree were looking out only for itself, then quite a few of them would never reach old age. Regular fatalities would result in many large gaps in the tree canopy, which would make it easier for storms to get inside the forest and uproot more trees. The heat of summer would reach the forest floor and dry it out, and every tree would suffer. And so what is it saying? It's saying that a tree is not a forest. But when many trees stand together for a significant amount of time, they create an environment that sustains life. And so what does the Bible say about the church? The church is a colony of heaven here on earth. There is something about the people of God gathering together that creates an ecosystem of heaven here in the middle of Guildford. And that is something that can't be sustained by just one tree. And so as many trees gathering together to become a church family, we have to fight to stay together. We have to value staying together. And 
What I think is interesting is if you follow the teaching of Jesus, he is incredibly vague most of the time. Have you noticed that? Like he is confusing. He answers most questions with another question. He is very rarely does he just give a simple answer, except on basically two themes, prayer and dealing with one another. When it comes to dealing with one another in the church, Jesus gets unusually and incredibly specific. You know that verse that we often use to encourage each other at the beginning of a church service, where many are gathered, Jesus is in their midst, where two or more are gathered? Anyone tell me where that verse comes? What's the story that comes just before that? Yeah. Dealing with sin in the church is the name of the chapter. So what Jesus is saying is like, hey, this is super messy. This is going to be really hard. And so whenever you need to have difficult conversations, I'm going to come and help. I'm going to be there in a greater measure because it's so important that we figure out how we do this community life together. And so we come to this little passage where Luke tells us that Jesus told a parable. Um, Actually, what he tells is a number of parables or a number of proverbial sayings, which he stacks on top of each other. And, um, And we'll look at it in just a moment. But interestingly, he starts with this term brother. Now, in the Greek, brother is actually a gender neutral term. So some translations rightly put it as brother or sister. But whenever you see that, you should think that Jesus is not talking to the crowds. He's not talking to the Pharisees. Whenever Jesus says brother, he's talking to the disciples. Like he's talking to the church. He is talking to us. So this is something that's not directed at them. This is something that is directed at us, and it is a way that Jesus suggests for us to live together. And I think, interestingly, it's a time when we really need to grapple with how Jesus gives us wisdom to do this. Like, we live culturally in a very interesting time where, on one side, one of the main mantras of culture today is, like, you do you, right? It's this statement of acceptance of openness, like at best a lack of judgment and condemnation, but at worst it's like you just, I'm going to ignore you, I'm going to take care of me, I'm not going to think about you, you live your truth, I'll live mine, let's just keep away from each other. So on one side we've got like you do you, which stands for a lack of judgment, but on the other side we've got another cultural phenomenon that's being called cancel culture, which is where someone crosses a boundary It's so severe that they don't just get called out on it, they get cancelled. And basically, it says that they should just lose any public platform. And particularly on social media, it starts with three simple letters, hashtag R-I-P. And it's this idea that council culture can be seen as an extension of call-out culture, the natural escalation from pointing out a problem to calling for the head of the person who caused it. You know, fatalities include the likes of Kanye West, Will Smith, J.K. Rowling, Dr. Zeus. And interestingly, this phenomenon has become so severe and so talked about that Rowan Atkinson, a.k.a. Mr. Bean, said that it is the digital equivalent of the medieval mob roaming the streets looking for someone to burn. And so... 
I feel like I'm increasingly having conversations with people, with God. How do we, as followers of Jesus in 2023, how do we engage in this? Like, how do we figure out how to find our feet somewhere between these two extremes? What are we to do that properly follows the way of Jesus? And this passage isn't everything that Jesus says on the matter by any stretch. But I think that there is something in this which is incredibly helpful for us to sit with and engage with. Both here and in Matthew, when Matthew tells this parable... It starts in the same way that Jesus often taught. What Jesus would often do is say this sort of big, bold, punch-in-the-gut statement, which then, he then goes on to like, so he grabs your attention and he goes on to like talk through it and explain what he means about it. And he starts with this, do not judge or you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Bang, he's hit you. And then he's like, got your attention. And now he's going to go through and trying to like explain what he means by that. And I think our challenge today is, what did Jesus mean? What did Jesus not mean? And how do we try and live in accordance with that? So let's start with what I don't think Jesus meant by this. Is Jesus saying here, use no sort of moral discernment about the actions that people are using? No, like, of course he can't be saying that. This passage comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' moral teaching, his manifesto for behavior that is worthy of the kingdom and behavior that's not worthy of the kingdom. And throughout it, he peppers this teaching with Big statements that are designed to sober us and challenge us. Things like, hey, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Better to be maimed than to end up in the lake of fire. Like all the way through, Jesus is saying that there are consequences to actions. And so I don't believe that Jesus can be saying, like, you just think about you and ignore everyone else. Why? Because fundamentally that's just unloving, right? We have a duty of care to one another. If we see one another in patterns of destructive behavior, then we'd better love one another enough to go and talk to them about it. Even in this story, where does it end? Right? I'm sure that lots of people are familiar with this story. What's the ending of this story? Take the log out of your own eye so that what? You can go. Right? I think that when we look, just a quick glance at this story, what we sort of see is Jesus saying... You've got a log in your own eye, so walk away. Leave it. You're in no position to do this. But actually, that's not the end of the story at all. The end of the story is for you to go and talk to someone. We just have to do some hard work before we get there. And so, here we go. How do we live out the words of Jesus here? And I think what Jesus' invitation is, is that Jesus is saying that at times... Being a church family means that we are going to have challenging and awkward confrontations. But while we do that, we have to keep a posture that isn't judgmental. So how do we have good judgment without being judgmental? And that is more than semantics. That is a complicated question. And I think that what Jesus is getting at is that being judgmental is believing that you somehow 
have the ability to see in and properly assess the heart and motives of someone else. And what you do is, once you've done that, you go and find Jesus, and you're like, hey, look at this person. Let's go and talk to them together. And you sort of canvas God against this person or about their actions or motives. And what Jesus is saying is, like, whoa, 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 whoa. Before you do that, stop. Before we go and speak to that person, I've got something to say to you. And to this attitude of superiority, Jesus brings intense critique. So who is the focus of this story, right? There is a person who, Jesus agrees, has a speck in their eye. But who is the focus of this person? The guy with the log in their eye, right? And who is that? The reader. And who's the reader? Us. So who's the focus of this story? Us. You are the villain of this story. Congratulations. So, but when you read it, like that's the person that you should be thinking about. Like You are the person with the log in their eye. And what does Jesus say to you? Well, I don't think that this is one of those parables that's got lots and lots of cultural layers that we have to pick apart. We need to look at the Greek. We need to get into it. I actually think that Peter put it well last week when he says, parables do not provide us with clarity or systematic instructions about the kingdom of God. Their goal was to tease us into active thought. I think what Jesus is inviting us to do with this story is to be teased into active thought, to sit down with a cup of tea and think about this parable. Think about who you are. Think about how you respond to it. Think about who the other people might be. And so we are the person that we should be thinking about in this story. And what are two things we know about the guy with a log in their eye? Number one, we know that he is ignoring or unaware of something pretty major about himself, right? Jesus was literally being like satirical here. When he said like a log, he was picturing like, you know, a two by four. He's literally saying like, imagine you have like a two by four sticking out of your eye. So the first thing we know about this guy is like, he is pretty unaware of something major or he's ignoring it. And then secondly, because of that, his vision is impaired, right? And what does Jesus call this person? A hypocrite. A hypocrite. Now, when we hear the word hypocrite, what we think about is, like, I don't know, maybe a politician or someone whose actions don't line up with their intentions, right, or what they say. Like, that's what we picture... And that's, that's fine. That's a fine translation. But that isn't actually how it was used back when Jesus was using it. The literal definition of a hypocrite was an actor, like a stage performer. Someone who acted on a stage like this would have been called a hypocrite. And in Greek culture, stage performers would have worn masks a little bit like this. So this is, a, this is an actor who would have worn a mask and... He would have been called a hypocrite. And literally, the word hypocrite, the word that we translate hypocrite, is a compound word. So it's two English words stuck together, which literally translated would be the interpreter from underneath. So what is Jesus saying? So what's the word? It's like a hypocrite is someone who interprets, who acts and interprets the story from underneath a mask. And so Jesus calls us a hypocrite. It's the people who put on a show. 
who are different on the inside to how they are on the outside. People who lack integrity and congruency. Something that you see is something so different to what's going on behind. And let us remember that it was to these people that Jesus paid and reserved his most scathing criticism. Like, that's a challenge to me. If you, uh, if you ever wanted proof that Siri was demonic, then there you go. So, save us, Lord. So, it was not the evil. It was not the broken. It was not the greedy. It was not the petty who were met with the most judgment. They were actually met with grace and compassion. It was the hypocrites who Jesus reserved his judgment for. And so we need to see that like congruency is incredibly important to Jesus. This integrity that says that you are the same the whole way through, where your motives and your actions and your speech and your public and your private life and all of these things run true. No matter where someone cuts you, they find the same you. But when speaking to the church, Jesus says, take your mask off. Don't wear a mask. Don't come here pretending to be better than you are. Don't come here looking down on everyone. Don't come either in your arrogance or insecurity, wearing your mask just like this, you hypocrite. Take it off. And that is a challenge to me. And so how do we not be that person? How do we avoid being this hypocrite that Jesus talks about? We get the log out of our eye. How do we do that? Well, have you ever tried to get something out of your eye? What do you do? You go somewhere that is really bright, and you look in the mirror, right? And if that doesn't work, you ask a friend, okay? And I think that's maybe as complicated as this parable gets. When we want to get something out of our eye, we go somewhere bright, and we look in the mirror. I wear contact lenses, and if I ever accidentally put them in the wrong way round, and you blink, they get folded up, and they go upside into the top of your eye, yeah? That's the reaction. Like Jesus is talking about this reaction. There is something about eyes that is like visceral, and it provokes us. Right? Has anyone had that? It's awful. Yeah, it's like awful. And you have to go to like I go to Hannah and be like, "Can you get it out?" And she's like, Ugh. "You know." But it's that thing. But what I do is I get somewhere where it's really bright. I get into the light, and I look in the mirror, and I pay attention to myself, and I very carefully, and I very gently get it out. It takes time, it takes focus, and it takes precision. And that's what I think Jesus is saying, that there is something about that process of self-reflection and self-examination that equips us for being able to talk to other people. People who, in humility, have come before God and have come before themselves and admitted they don't have it all together, that they are imperfect, that they have insecurities that affect their motives, that they have disordered desires that seep into their decision-making. And they've come before God, and they've taken off the mask, and they've boldly approached the throne of grace, and they've been met with compassion 
and love, and that changes someone. Spurgeon put it brilliantly when he said this, none are more unjust in their judgments of others than those who have a high opinion of themselves. And why does that, why does coming before God shape us so much? Well, I think that that process prepares us for conversations in two ways. Firstly, it means you can see clearly. And secondly, you know how much it hurts. So, number one, you see clearly. If you get into the story, with what part of your body do you perceive the speck in someone else's eye? Your eye, right? If you've got a massive two-by-four in there, what is being, like, um, compromised? Your vision, yeah. Like, your sight, your vision. And how many times have we done this? We believe that we perceive something correctly. We take offense. We build up a story. We canvas other people in. How many conversations have you had in your head with someone without actually speaking to them? Well, I'm going to say this, and then they're going to say this, but then I'm going to say this, and then that will really get them. Right? We do it. We have a million conversations with someone before we actually get there. And then when they do say it, and they're like, oh, I, I didn't realize. I thought it was something totally different. And so there is something about us we don't see clearly. When Thea, our daughter, was six months old, and obviously babies spend a lot of time on the floor, she got a hair wrapped around her toe. And um, you know how like babies are a bit like the Michelin man, like all of those rolls of fat, right? It got into one of those to such a deep level that her foot started going blue, and I could not get it out. And so we end up a couple of days before Christmas in A&E in Northern Ireland trying to get this little bit of hair cut off of her toe. And what ended up happening is the surgeon had to come with one of the, you know those glasses that also have like little glasses inbuilt into the big glasses? You know those ones? He comes and he gets this magical surgical lamp and he like shines it straight on there. And so he can do the fine work of getting in and cutting this little hair. And I'm so grateful that he did that, right? If he had to come in and been like, I forgot my glasses today and I can't really see, but let me at her. Be like, no, go and get some glasses, right? Make sure you can see clearly before you do this. And actually, all the way through the Bible, there seems to be this correlation between our heart posture, our holiness, and our ability to see correctly. We've just done the Beatitudes. What is it? Blessed are the pure in heart because they will see God. And vice versa, in 1 John, he puts it like this. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go having been blinded. So there is something about the way in which we come before God, that we posture ourselves towards holiness and towards love that actually affects our ability to see. Who is the one person that doesn't have any log in their own eye? Jesus. And how does Jesus act? To those who come aware of their brokenness, he acts with grace and compassion. And I believe that as we begin to see, we'll do the same. Mother Teresa put it like this. If you judge people, you have no time to love them. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this. God's truth judges created things out of love. And Satan's truth judges them out of envy and hatred. 
And interestingly, what Luke actually does when he compiles this is he puts it right after the passage about loving your enemy. Now, to the early church, like for us, we'll often talk about something like John 3.16 as like the mark of us, like the mark of the Christian church, for God so loved the world. For the early church, it was far more that teaching, like love your enemy. That was something that no one before and no one since has had the audacity to say. Jesus alone said, love your enemy. And it marked his followers. And so Jesus says, love your enemy. And then he comes in and he says, forgive and don't judge. And um, to the measure that you give it, we measure back to you. And then he sticks all of these parables together. And the ones that he sticks together are like this. He says, he talks about the blind leading the blind. He talks about the log and the speck. He talks about good and bad fruit. And then he ends, interestingly, with the wise and foolish builder. And so he stacks all of these stories, all of these sayings, as a way to explain what he's just said. And one theologian puts it really helpfully like this. Some are blind, hypocritical, produce evil fruit, hear without acting, and build without a foundation. Others produce good fruit, hear and act, and build on a foundation of rock. And so Luke is trying to paint a picture of two different people. Some who wear a mask, who come with judgment and arrogance, and other who come and they build good fruit, and they hear the words of Jesus and they act upon them, and they build on a solid foundation. And so, number one, we remove the log so that we can see clearly. And number two, we remove the log so we know how much it hurts when something gets taken out of your eye. Have you ever had something taken out of your eye? Like, it's painful, right? It's sore. And interestingly, Matthew puts in a really helpful little sentence when he tells this story. He says it like this. The same way you judge others, you will be judged. Now, that isn't actually negative, necessarily, It's just saying, like, the way that you do it, expect it to be done back to you. Now, when you go and take something out of someone's eye, you want to do it with, like, gentleness and care, right? When my little brother turned 21, he decided, and he was born in February, he decided that he wanted to go, like, dirt buggy, dune buggy racing, right? So you get this, like, roll cage thing, and you go around this muddy track, and you, like, spin this dune buggy thing and everything. But you had these like super eager like 21-year-olds like running the extreme sports. And I like got dressed and they gave me a helmet but I had no goggles. And they were like, no, you don't want to wear goggles because all the like mud will fly up and it will cover and you won't be able to see. Well, turns out they were right. But if the goggles aren't there, guess where the mud goes? Yeah. Half an hour later, I was in A&E lying down with the ophthalmology nurse, with this horrible little looking like torture instrument with my eye propped open, picking mud out of the inside of my eye for an hour. No joke. So it turns out, yeah, the goggles actually are quite useful. But I did get a high score, so come on. Maybe it's worth it. So, you know. But you know what? Like, I'm so grateful. Like, the way that she did it. She came. She took an hour. She carefully sat there. She didn't come in and be like, okay, yep, I can see it. We're going to take the eye, right? (laughs) We'll get this sorted. I'm coming in. Right, when you go, when someone comes and asks you to get something out of their eye, what do you want to do? If you care about them, you do it carefully. You do it slowly. 
you do it gently. And you want to do it as painlessly as possible while also removing the speck. And do you know what's interestingly, I think, having thought back, and not that I do this a lot, I'm not, I'm not the eye helper guy, but in the times when I have done this, interestingly, when you do it well, people res- always respond in one of two ways. Either they say, oh, thank you, that was so sore. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad that's gone. Or, oh, thank you. That is so much better. Do you know what I mean? Rarely do they go, oh, get away from me. I, I get you got it out, but just get away from me. That hurts so much. Like they respond, like they are aware of the pain that it's causing. And I think that as we approach this, if we can do this heart work as we come into these conversations, if we went in a posture that loved people, that said, like, I want to help you. I want to help you get this speck out. But that hopefully the end of that conversation would be, oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. That was causing me so much discomfort. Oh, thank you. That feels so much better. As opposed to like coming in with what Jesus would call like judgment and condemnation. Coming down to like bring the holiness hammer to bear on someone. And so coming into land and maybe get the band back up. I wonder if we could just take a moment right now to just reflect in our own hearts, minds, lives. You know, coming full circle to where I started this this cost but this reward of a church community that can stand together over time and create an ecosystem of heaven. And actually, how do we posture ourselves to live in such a way that that might happen? And so... Maybe for some of us, the truth is, it's like we're aware that we have been fairly judgmental. We do spend our lives thinking about other people's motives, about their hearts, that we begin to tell stories about them in our head, which occasionally seek out other people. We tell stories about them to other people as well. And maybe the Lord is coming and saying, like, I might actually need you to go and talk to them, but before you do, let's get you ready for that conversation. Or maybe for others of us, it's as simple as we know that we wear a mask. We know that we are the hypocrite sometimes. Probably the truth of us, truth is all of us do that at different times and in different ways. That we come and we put something up. That we act differently on the outside than we feel on the inside. And Jesus in his grace is just inviting us to come again boldly before the throne of grace and saying, hey, let's lose the mask. Let's stop play acting. Let's be honest. So why don't we stand? We're going to go into song. I'm going to pray for you. Lord, we thank you for these words. God, these revolutionary words. And Lord, as we come together now, Lord, we in repentance say that we have logs in our eyes in all sorts of different ways. That we've been making judgments without being able to see clearly. That we haven't been acting and thinking and living with the care and the love that you had called us to. So Holy Spirit, we ask you right now that in your grace would you come, would you expose those things to us? If you're calling us to have some brave conversations, would you get us ready and give us the courage to do that? 
if you're asking us to be more gentle, then pray, Lord Jesus, that you would reveal that to us now as well. We thank you, God. We thank you for this church. We thank you for the way that you are forming and building us to be a colony of heaven here on earth. Lord, we hear it, we see it, and we want to respond to that call with a big yes and amen. Help us to do that, Lord Jesus. And we ask this in your grace and in your power. Amen.